Our gospel lesson this morning is a wonderful and well-known story. It's the feeding of the 5,000, or really double that if we're going to include the women and children. And fun Bible fact for your next trivia round, this is the only Jesus miracle that occurs in all four gospels. That's for you, Walter McWhorter and Cheryl Davis. I'm reading the Common English Bible this morning, so listen carefully to John's version in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went across the Galilee Sea, that is the Tiberias Sea. A large crowd followed him because they had seen the miraculous signs he had done among the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and he sat there with his disciples. It was nearly time for Passover, the Jewish festival. Jesus looked up. And he saw a large crowd coming toward him, and he asked Philip, where will we buy food to feed these people? And Jesus said this to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, more than half a year's salary worth of food wouldn't be enough for each person to have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, a youth here has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that for a crowd like this? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass there. And they sat down, about 5,000 of them. And then Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were sitting there. And he did the same with the fish, each getting as much as they wanted. When they had plenty to eat, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of barley and loaves and pieces of fish. When the people saw that he had done a miraculous sign, they said, this is truly the prophet who is coming into the world. And Jesus understood that they were about to come and force him to be their king. So he took refuge again alone on the mountain. Friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are two types of people in this world, planners and non-planners. The Myers-Briggs personality test differentiates this with the letter P for perceiver and J for judger. J's, the planners, like my husband, plan their day thoughtfully and carefully, especially when it comes to eating. They take care when it is time to feed children and arrange the details so as to have food available when needed. Other J's are like my two best friends from high school who, when visiting from Cincinnati, travel with their five children, collectively a spouse and a dog. And these two planners always have a trunk load of groceries, sunscreen, and a change of clothes for everyone. It's marvelous. It's astounding, really. (laughs) Especially because things like this never occur to us peas, the non-planners. We can't spend time being bothered by such logistics, can we? You, spontaneous ones, you know what I'm talking about. If it strikes you to go hiking, well, then go on a hike. If you want to visit friends for the entire day and bring your three kids along, jump in the car and go. The challenge with this, then, is that mid-hike, people get hangry. 
Or by the afternoon at your friend's house, you must spend time navigating what to do for dinner, and you might end up spending more money than you had originally planned. Not that any of this has happened in my life. (laughs) While none of this lack of planning is in and of itself problematic, it can cause anxiety for those who prefer a good schedule. Tyler can testify to this as he has overplanned to accommodate for my lack of planning for nearly 18 years now. <laughs> Bless all you Jays. We might say that the crowd today lost track of time and didn't plan accordingly when going to meet Jesus and the disciples. It was, after all, time to eat. Where were all the planners? In fact, the only one who had planned for mealtime, oddly enough, was this young boy who carried with him five loaves of bread and some fish. I love the detail in the story that says there was plenty of grass there. Did you hear that? Imagine a giant field crammed with people, all in need, all curious about this itinerant prophet, all hungry. The disciples are nervous and they are overworked, and they are understandably tired. People are busy getting ready for Passover, and Jesus and his comrades had escaped the crowd to rest for a while. And the clamor of these approaching non-planners and the anxiety of the moment, Jesus puts Philip to the test, and he says, where will we buy food to feed these people? Philip makes an astute observation. We could work for six months and still not have enough money to feed this many people. In other words, your question is ludicrous, Jesus. We can't feed them. I love it in one of the other Gospels, Philip says to send them back to town. And then on cue, Peter's brother Andrew shows up with this boy holding a basket of food. Just five loaves of bread and two fish. It's laughable, really. Or it's cute in a pejorative way. This child offers the little he has. And yet Jesus' compassion for the crowd, clearly the non-planners at the home, and his reliance on this child together conduct an electric force of unfolding abundance. Twelve baskets are left over, and everyone has had their fill. Often we interpret this text on a personal level. We wonder and we hear the challenge to share with others that which is ours to share, trusting that it will be enough. We center on the meekness of the child and we seek to approach God with our own earnest sacrificial intents. Another common interpretation is the idea of abundance. And I really like this one. You've heard me say it before that it always starts small with the Gospels. A grain of yeast, a piece of salt, a boy with five pieces of bread and two fish, a mustard seed. That when tapped into the power of the Holy One, feeds thousands, starts a movement, bursts the church, inspires others to a new ethic, a new way of living. Where there is little with God, there is always enough. Now, I hope to expand our consideration of this story today. Let's think about it on a systemic level. Let's ask the same questions we have always asked of this story, but instead of asking for ourselves, let's ask on behalf of our church. We may not have a massive crowd barreling into the sanctuary for healing this morning, 
but we are here with our own needs and desires. And there are so many isms plaguing the world today. You don't need me to name them all. They are the systems that trap people in poverty. They are the systems that limit the worth of those with physical and mental disabilities. The systems that ignore the climate crisis, science, and withhold the dignity of all of God's children. Often in the case of these systems, we show up as individuals, and then we get overwhelmed by the magnitude. Like Philip, we ask how to respond, knowing that anything we could give is a drop in the ocean. How can one boy feed thousands? And so in an effort to combat the overwhelm that we might feel when we look at the needs in front of us today, let's show up together. Let's be Highland Baptist Church. And let's ask the question collectively, what is ours to give? Wonder with me, what is our five loaves of bread and two fish? How can we channel the planning ones among us and do our best to prepare for what's ahead, all the while knowing that the need will always surpass our best offering? How can we be faithful to the moment and, like the child, share our humble gift? What is that gift that Jesus invites our church to share? One commentator writes that this gospel story addresses the temptation to shrug one's shoulders in the face of human need. Highland, you are not a shoulder-shrugging church. You're a come-what-may, let's-face-this-together-and-figure-out-a-good-church-process for how to respond. Amen? And here's how I know this to be true. One of the best parts of my job the last few weeks has been working with Nancy Goodhue and Margaret Pennington and Mary Alice in the Reparations Task Force to interview longtime congregants and former pastors. Part of our goal with these interviews is to augment our oral history with our written history as we seek to make sense of Highland's past with race relations and racial justice efforts. Every single interviewee has commented that even in the seasons when race relations were less of an emphasis on a congregational level, the conversations and quests for racial justice were very much alive in the daily living of you all as congregants. And this is a beautiful thing. When the city's busing program started in the 1970s, many of you bused your children to a new school district. Not only so, but you showed up at new schools ready to engage and serve. Some of you were involved with peace initiatives like the Baptist Peace Fellowship throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Others of you have been attending marches and rallies, protests and movements since the civil rights era of the 1960s through the Black Lives Matter movement of today. You are a church that works in helping professions and in fields of advocacy at Kentucky Refugee Ministries or through hospice care, building homes with Habitat for Humanity to supporting addicts through needle exchange programs. You volunteer with organizations designed to dismantle homelessness and generational poverty, as well as all of the nonprofits that you direct, financially support, and believe in. There are those of you who work in our education systems as well as in healthcare, and I name all of this to name that each of you 
is an essential worker in the life of the gospel. And then I could give some larger institutional examples of Highland refusing to shrug shoulders in the face of trials. Consider your quest for inclusion and how you have journeyed to the point of radical hospitality. The church archives and the interviewees affirm this. There is the affirmation and ordination of women in the 70s and 80s. Your conversations around the support of gay marriage in the 90s and 2000s. The baptism conversation in 2010s. It is in our DNA to rise to current challenges and not to give in to the paralysis of overwhelm. Instead, you press on faithfully like the disciples, like the little boy, and you serve the meal of abundance. Therefore, I believe that it is right to say that we seek to be a church that knows and understands and responds to the needs around us. So it is right that we ask today, what is Highland's five loaves of bread and two fish? Are we ready to share it? One of the interviews we conducted, Mary Alice, Nancy, and I was with Bob Markert, the artist who created these windows. He's a delightful new friend and an infinitely talented artist. When Bob entered the sanctuary last week, he was caught by surprise. Look at these windows, they're gorgeous. As I rode the elevator back with him to the parking lot, I was commenting one more time on the gift of his talent, and he reflected, we make God's praise come out of ourselves, and it's wonderful. I imagine the small boy with his bread and fish saying the same thing. Look with me for another moment to the work of the reparations task force. Reparations is certainly one of those opportunities for us to ask, like Philip and Andrew, what could our small gift be among such profound injustice? How can anything that we might pay back to the black community as a church respond justly to generations of redlining, unfair wages, a government complicit in the injustices of white privilege? What difference can our bread and fish make in the face of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and police brutality? Will we ever be able to agree on what our bread and fish might be? How much bread and fish must we share? We might think with Philip we could work for six months and not have enough to feed all who hunger. And let me pause here to say, church, it's okay to ask these questions. Jesus never reprimands the disciples in this passage for their confusion. They are legitimate and practical doubts, and the needs among this huge, hungry crowd are complex, and they are layered, and they are nuanced. Jesus does not underestimate this, but he is also not deterred by reality, so that when a church needs a new million-dollar-plus HVAC system, And when a church has ministry to one another that shapes our faith family or inquires a certain amount in its annual budget, when we are accustomed to a certain style of ministry and worship, how can we disrupt these things by offering reparations? And who will receive our gifts? And how much will we give? And again, they're all good, respectable questions, questions we must ask in fullness. Therefore, we will need to discern and discover together as a full congregation our loaves and fish. For 10 months now, the task force has been researching our history as a congregation. 
relying on historical texts, church archives, local newspapers, and other forms of media, we unearth our complicity in systemic racism. We are seeking to discover how we, a predominantly white congregation, have benefited at the expense of people of color. We are considering everything from our land deed to the cloud of witness in these stained glass windows. Now, rather than jumping to a solution, the task force is taking the advice that people of color demand that we do to know our roots. It has taken some considerable time, and you have been very patient. We will share with you next month a report that is about 35 pages outlining our racial history. And don't worry, there will be about a four-page summary for most of you. <laughs> and then we will dialogue. And we will process together in a courageous congregational conversation in September. Now, I know there is much speculation and talk circulating about our windows, these beautiful stained glass windows. And while I cannot know everything, I do know that there is concern, fear, indignation, and powerful opinions on all places of the spectrum regarding the beauty of these pieces of art. How do we respond to the fact that there are two slaveholders depicted? They are Richard Furman and James Boyce, and they're in the purple window back here on the left by where Gary Waller sits. It's our Baptist heritage window. Further, there are folks who are anti-Semitic, segregationist, and colonialist in these windows, and we must and we will reckon with this. However, Rest assured that the task force will not make a decision for you about how to respond. The task force can and will only offer recommendations and opinions about various opportunities and ways to respond and move forward. As you know, these will eventually be presented to ministry council, and then it will be your time to decide how we respond. Know that we will do it in community, through postures of prayer, discernment, contrition, and listening. Please be in prayer for this work, for it will be the work of our church. And like the bread and fish we have offered in the past through intentional and careful church-wide conversations, the support of our deacon body, and the leadership of ministry council, this will also be a careful and tender process. The Reparations Task Force will host listening sessions with you in October and possibly further into the winter. Beyond this, assisting the task force in these considerations will be four black consultants who we will hire to share their wisdom, opinions, and support of our efforts to discern what is the best in what we have to offer. It is important that we do not do this work in a vacuum of whiteness, assuming that we know what is best for oppressed communities. Rather, in consultation with those who are most negatively impacted by white supremacy, we will respect what bread and fish they need. Highland, I so believe that we are ready for this conversation. Because we do not shrug our shoulders in the face of injustice, because we understand just how overwhelming piecework can be, because we believe in the power of compassion, of God's transforming love and theological liberation, God is positioning us for this work. Perhaps there will even be room for us to partner with other churches in Louisville in the act of paying financial reparations. 
Margaret and Nancy and I sat with Joe and Terry Phelps for one of the interviews. Joe served this parish as pastor for 22 years, retiring just recently in 2018. In regard to the racial justice ministries that unfolded and grew during their tenure here, we reflected on the ministry No Murders Metro, our crosses on the lawn service, the founding of Empower West, then eventually our anti-racism team and now the reparations task force. And Joe reflected this. It was where the gospel took us. It was ancillary to what we did on Sunday mornings. You see, this is one of the reasons I believe reparations will be part of our loaves and fishes. What we do here in worship supports our work in the community and vice versa. Our community engagement is an outpouring of our worship to God each weekend. And Joe went on to say, the church was ready for race relations work. The church had flexed its muscles to say that God is more inclusive and more loving than we could ever imagine it to be. God includes women and children, immigrants, LGBTQ siblings, and now we must keep at the racial thing. When we asked him about his hopes for Highland, he said, continue to beat the drum of justice and do it with integrity. Don't lose the Christian message. That's where the racial energy and the work of healing is so laid out so beautifully. That sounds like Joe, doesn't it? Highland, as we consider our bread and fish, our privilege and resources, our readiness to participate in another miracle that Jesus might be working among us, the miracle of human dignity in each person in this country, the miracle of whites making amends for their sin of racism, the miracle of bounty and goodness in the face of scarcity and evil. What is ours to give? Maybe it isn't so much about making a plan or not. God gives each of us gifts that, when used together, build up the body of Christ and all are fed and fully satisfied. It is about, instead, how we show up with those gifts to further the kingdom of God. It is about spreading healing power throughout the masses. Friends, may we nourish one another as God nourishes us. Oh, let it be so. Amen. <laughs>